And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it is Wednesday. It's the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. So, uh, Danny Ratliff joining me here in just a few minutes to talk about the biggest crash of your life is coming. Apparently, this is what Harry Dent is saying. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit this morning with uh, Danny Ratliff. But um, outside of that, news yesterday, of course, got everybody all kind of shaken up was the retail sales report came in a lot stronger than expected. It was expected to come in basically about uh, 0 0.1, 0 0.2%, came in at 0.7. So about double what was, actually a little more than double what was actually expected to come in at yesterday. And you know, when you actually dig down into the numbers, that's where it got a little bit interesting because uh, if you actually take a look at stuff that people were spending money on, like gasoline, that actually wasn't up last month. So again, you know, this is where we start looking at where consumers are finally starting to fill the pinch. And so it was non-store retailers that were up the most. They were up 3%. Um, last month. So again, you know, non-store retailers, what is that? That's uh, like pet stores. Um, so it's, you know, it's just kind of very, especially retailers, non-store retailers, that's where a lot of the big gain was yesterday. But that's all on a seasonally adjusted basis. If you look at the data just on the raw basis, the non-seasonally adjusted data, it was actually down 5.8% yes, uh, in, in the latest report. So now that kind of aligns more with what we were expecting uh, to see from consumers considering you know higher interest rates higher inflation those type of things so again while the the headline retail sales report was much better expected of course that's boosted gdp estimates for quarter three uh, the atlanta fed now expecting 5.4 percent economic growth in quarter three the one thing i want to caution you on in all of this economic data is that it is subject to huge revisions at some point in the future so you know when and this is always the problem. By the time that we figure out we're in a recession, it's generally 12 to, you know, 9 to 12 to, you know, 16 months after the fact. And the, the National Bureau of Economic Research, who actually dates recessions, will come back and say, oh, yeah, the recession started, you know, back in quarter three of last year. And we're going, hey, well, wait a minute, back in quarter three of last year, it was all good economic data. Well, then of course the revisions come, we look back and the data wasn't nearly as good as we thought it was at the time. So the, so the reason I bring this up is just to always be a little bit careful with economic data. Um, what we see today is not necessarily what it will be in the future. Now, we don't really care much about revisions in terms of markets. We only focus about what's happening in the near term. But the, the, the issue with this, of course, is that this is how we drive monetary policy. This is how we drive governmental policy. It's like, oh, everything's good right now, so you know we don't need to do anything. We don't need to take any precautions. We don't need to prepare for a downturn. And then when the downturn actually comes, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we gotta we gotta fix this problem now. But you know, this is the problem with, particularly in, in the case of the Federal Reserve, basing monetary policy on lagging economic data rather than looking at data that it was going to be like in the future. So again, you know, this is, this is where these problems come and why eventually the, Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve finds itself having to backtrack itself very quickly, cut rates, do types of programs to bail out some section of the economy that's blowing up, 
because we assume, and again, the Federal Reserve right now, assuming that everything is just fine. They're looking at this strong retail sales data, say, oh, the consumer's fine, no worries at all. You know, the economy's doing just fine, no worries at all. Employment is strong, no worries. So I'm gonna keep interest rates higher for longer. And then something breaks, and then it's a panic for the woodshed. So, you know, this is, you know, this is the thing to kind of keep a watch on. We know that when we take a look at the trend of retail sales, and particularly if you take a look at this trend of the non-seasonally adjusted retail sales, that trend of retail sales is declining. And again, is becoming weaker over time. As we would expect, as more and more money is extracted from the system, as of course, because of higher interest rates and inflation, those type of things, money doesn't go as far. So people are running out of savings or they're having to turn more and more to credit card debt that's becoming a little bit more difficult to obtain. So not surprisingly, when we look at the non-seasonal adjustments of this retail sales data. Now, when I'm talking about seasonal adjustments, this is where we have raw data. So we go sample the data and we say, okay, here's what the data is. And then we do some adjustments because of back to school shopping or what we think happens on a seasonal basis. So we make these adjustments. We say, oh, well, normally at this time of the year, um, you know, this is what's going on. So we add to this and we take away from this. So we seasonally adjust this data to smooth it over time. And there's some logic to doing that. But again, when we take a look at the raw data, what's actually happening, it's a little bit different story. So again, not saying anything in particular one way or the other, it just is what it is. But again, that kind of, kind of shot the market around yesterday morning. Uh, stocks opened a bit lower. So uh, again, you know, that's kind of not surprising because of concerns about more inflation coming from higher retail sales. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, markets did open lower yesterday um, and then rallied back to close basically unchanged yesterday afternoon. So again, the one thing that we've been talking about here lately is this really what we've seen kind of on a consistent basis for the last week or so in particular is this kind of late end of the day buying. We can, you know, markets can kind of be weak intraday, but at the end of the day, markets tend to rally into the close. So again, yesterday was a good example of this. Market was opened up a little bit, opened down yesterday, rallied back, had some buying come into the markets, actually got positive yesterday afternoon, um, sold off and then rallied back into the close. And so that late day buying is where institutions are coming in and, and picking up positions on their portfolios, those type of things. So that's actually a good thing uh, for the markets, at least in the near term. And as we start to move into November, November is a month where you have your large, some of your largest inflows into ETFs and mutual funds um, uh, for any month of the year. Uh, January is a big month. November is a big month. So you have a lot of inflows coming in next month. Of course, also, as we've talked about, buybacks will we'll start back up then. Uh, again, earnings season right now kind of driving the markets uh, a little bit here as we start to get announcements from different companies. Paying attention to some of these quarterly profits you know, is, is important and to see what they're saying about the impact of higher interest rates, higher inflation. So far, not, and again, we haven't had that many companies report yet. So again, not a lot to take away from, from the announcements just yet, but so far, not a lot of real concern from, on these corporate calls. So again, that's, that's a good sign as well. Corporations, at least at this point so far, we haven't seen a lot of big concerning 
uh, data points about the markets and the economy going forward. So again, you know, markets continue to trade uh, above the 20-day moving average. That's support below the 50 and the 100-day moving average. That's resistance. So really just kind of trapped in here right now. Uh, you know, but again, we're, we're back into forming one of these kind of wedges in the markets. We do this kind of on a regular basis. Um, we kind of compress prices a bit, and then prices are going to make a move in one direction or the other on a breakout. So a breakout below this wedge will retest the 200-day moving average. A breakout above this wedge, we're going to retest these highs from June and July. So again, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of upside at this point, not a tremendous amount of downside at this point. Market's really kind of stuck in this range. So again, it's just kind of a function of managing risk in the portfolio for the time being. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, we're going to pick up. Got a few things to get into this morning um, to talk about with Danny. Uh, first, of course, is Harry Dent's latest warning about the biggest crash coming ever in 2024. That was kind of the, one of the more shocking headlines this morning. But also, the U.S., we're ranking a C on retirement. So, again, just we got to get things back on track. Uh, we'll come back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, for realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Radliff joining me. Good morning, Danny. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing great. Just a ray of sunshine this morning, are you? Yes, sir. Always. Always optimistic, always looking out for the future. Everything's good. Everything's great. I like that. And then you bring this article, Harry Dent, crash of a lifetime coming in 2024. Just want to throw a little bit of rain on the parade this morning, huh? Well, hey, this is what people are reading, right? I mean, and this is something that people are concerned about. I mean, a lot of, inf a lot of things going on all at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you made some good points just a moment ago about kind of where we are. There's nothing that has, uh, you know, so far with mm -hmm. CEO sentiment, earnings, you know, just getting started, but, right. you know, doesn't mean there's a crash right here. But I think people are concerned, right? We've taken, or the Fed has done their best to take a recession out of the business cycle. And Harry Dent is talking about catastrophic. Right. Well, yeah, let me just read I mean, to you this quote. People think I'm crazy. Not me. This is Harry Dent, by the way. <laughs> well, that people, too. But. People think I'm crazy too, but yeah. People think I'm crazy when I say the stock market will go down 86% on the S&P, the worst case, but also my most likely case. So, you know, that's, you know, just to put that in, in, in perspective, we thought that, you know, the financial crisis was the end of the financial markets as we knew it. And that was a 52% correction uh, head to toe. So, you know, 86% would certainly dwarf that financial crisis decline by a lot. Yeah, that's that's depression mode. And so for you the guys that don't know who Harry Dent is, so he's yeah, a Harvard I was gonna say, you gotta, you educated gotta bit, yeah. uh, economist. He is uh, he called the crash of 1989. He called the dot com bubble. He called that Trump was going to be elected. Those are three things he's done in 40 some odd years. But he's always called something. And, they, you know, you write a lot. Yeah. 
you know, and so it's very easy. And as narratives change, you know, stimulus changes, what the government does, monetary fiscal policy, you know, outlooks will change as well. But he has predominantly and always, yeah, and, and, almost always been negative. Right, right. And and his premise, if you don't know who Harry Den is, I, I encourage you to go look him up. He is a very smart man, um, has written a lot of books. But his, his kind of claim to fame is the fourth turning, which is this generational occurrence that happens. And so you go through turnings within economies, and these are long-term cycles. And we're now in that fourth turning where you have kind of a, a whole uh, coincidence of events that have come together, low birth rates, um, you know, a, a turn away from religion, you know, all, all these kinds of, you know, increases in debts and deficits. And, and this all kind of occurs. And, and what he looks back to over time and over across different societies um, is these turning events. And this fourth turning is the end of a growth cycle for an economy. So, Again, this is the, kind of the premise behind, you know, why his view is is that we're going to have this big crash coming. Now he's saying it's going to happen in 2024, um, but you know he said it was going to happen in 2022. Now he's saying it's going to happen in 2024. 2024. It could right. continue to happen, right? And he also said that he would quit writing if it didn't happen at a certain point. <laughs> and here, here he is once again. Yeah. And and so Neil Howe wrote the fourth turning. It is Richard. Yeah, and I, I I'm talked sorry. About I didn't it. say. I said. But I, he does subscribe correct. that because he looks yeah. at economics, demographics is a big part of that. And certainly the cycles that we are in. And I can make an argument. For you, this is actually probably one of his, with the exception of that statement you just read. Right. Probably when you, when you kind of look through his interview, you're like, okay, this makes sense. Right. In some ways. Right. But, you know, what it is, it's that fear factor that gets people to mm. continue to subscribe. And so he does have a newsletter, right, that <laughs> you can buy if you want to know exactly what you should do. And, and, and so, buy gold. What's yeah, that? Buy gold. So. No, he's actually not buying gold. He says really? buy treasuries. Buy treasuries. Okay. Yeah, he says he doesn't think gold's going to work. Okay. He said Interesting. Treasuries will be the place to be your cash if you can't stomach a treasury. Okay. Which today I could stomach a treasury pretty darn good. Yeah, absolutely. You know. But but it is interesting. I mean, you know, and and the the I think the real takeaway from this is, you know, and and we talked a little bit about this yesterday on the show, which is you've got to be real careful. We all have a personal bias. Um Danny has a bias, I have a bias, Brent has a bias towards Oreos. Um, but <laughs> uh, everybody's got a bias. And so the problem is, is that we tend to latch on to a particular, you know, message that confirms our bias. And, this, and we talked about this yesterday in the show. We have these nine kind of mental biases that we all fall into when we're managing money. And th that's what leads to long-term underperformance. So if you have a, a, a bearish bias, right, and you're looking for that kind of end-of-the-world type scenario, you're going to love this article from Harry Dent talking about the crash lifetime because it feeds, it provides that confirmation bias that you need to feed your view. And so you're like, well, you know, this is where I am. I'm in, you know, I'm in these positions because I think this is going to come. And here's this confirming piece of data that that makes me feel better about my position. And that's that trap we get ourselves into. And that's the same thing for the bull case as well, right? And so I'm not just, you know, if you have a bearish bias, I'm not just picking on you. It's same thing happens for bulls. I mean, if you're bullish, you're looking for everything that's coming along. 
that you know is bullish and supports that bullish bias and and so when the markets go down a little bit you start looking for stuff to support the bullish bias and this is why it's it's really hard and and why mike and i and and danny and richard we spend so much time looking at all the different sides of these arguments to try to to you know get to what reality is most likely going to be and that's that's the challenge of managing money we've got to kind of navigate these personal biases that we have and you know make investments that are are going to follow along with what the trends of the data suggest is most likely the outcome and sometimes that's not always you know kind of where we feel like we should be and particularly in in, in when an asset class is in a really big bear market nobody wants it anymore right so when when things are going down stocks are going down 2008 stocks are going down nobody wants to own stocks because stocks are going to zero that was the best time to buy stocks right now you've got bonds in a major bear market equivalent to what we saw with stocks in 2008 nobody wants to buy bonds right because they're going to zero this is this is when those opportunities present themselves but our biases keep us from taking advantage our, and you know our fears and our greed and those type of things they prevent us from taking advantage of the opportunities when they come along so again there's you know you know harry dent's making a case for why you know the market's going to crash next year and there's certainly a lot of of concerns about that high inflation high interest rates you know deficits and and this is something i'm writing about in this weekend's newsletter kind of the latest meme of the end of the world crowd is now deficits right we have these surging deficits which is going to be the end of the u.s as we know it we've had deficits for 50 years right now they're a problem all of a sudden deficits are a problem they weren't a problem you know in 2020 they weren't a problem in 2010 and you know we're doubling debt over the last three uh, administrations but now it's a problem right so you know again it's just whatever data point seems to fit a particular narrative is what these people are jumping on to sell newsletters to sell you know products whatever it is so just be the, the point that danny's making is just be careful of the narratives and i think that's the the, the right point to take away from this right dan yeah absolutely i always try to take all of this with a grain of salt you want to hear both sides of the, of the story here and, and understand you know the the pros and cons of each and understand what somebody is selling right he's, he's got a, something at the end of the at the end of the day that he's trying to to hawk out there well and i i think his i think his you know concluding sentence was people say Harry, the Fed won't let that happen. Well, in the end, when there's a battle between God and central bankers, I'm going to bet on God. Um, you know, that kind of undermines your whole thesis. Now, not because now and, it's emotional, not right. Well, and, and again, you know, look, I'm, you know, if I've got to make a bet on anything, I'm going to bet on God first and foremost, right? That's just. Yeah. The nature of, uh, I, you know, I've talked about uh, Blaise Pascal and, and what he said, you know, about believing in God or not. And he says, you know, if, if believing in God leads to, you know, eternal salvation, I'm going to take that bet, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's not worth the alternative. And, you know, so but as soon as you, you, you bring religion into this story, now you've completely, you know, kind of undermined your whole fact-based argument, which is, you know, look, the Fed is an actual material thing that can take action and and help stave off economies, recessions, those type of things. And so if your argument was, look, the Federal Reserve can only buy so much debt. And because of where we are, this is going to this is going to be a, an issue that the Fed can't bail out in the next round. And here's the reasons why that would have been a much better argument. Yeah. And, and I understand, you know, being wrong. Yeah. I think everybody has that 
that we, we've been wrong. We've been early. We've been, you know, I mean, but we've yep. been able to shift and be nimble with that as well. Sure. And I think that's the thing that most people need to understand that when you're looking at this, you can't just get so far into one particular camp that there's no way out. Right. I mean, there's no way out. I mean, you know, I, I had somebody years ago, it's like early 2000s, and they're like, Danny, did you hear what this guy said? So I'm like, all right, let me pull him up. And uh, I think it was Art Cash and the UBS yeah. floor trader way back in the day. And, you know, so, so he was on CNBC all the time. So I pulled up his articles and it was like one day he'd say, you know, run for the hills. And the next day he'd say, <laughs> if you're not all in, you're missing out. And I'm thinking, that, that oh. Was, that wasn't Art Cash and that was Ralph uh, Akampora. Okay, it may have been him. It was, but our cashing was very similar in that. It, it as was, well. but but uh, Ralph's nickname was Ralph Make You Poor, yeah. uh, because it was it was one day you know he's bullish, the next day he's bearish, the next day he's bullish, the next day he's bearish, and so if you were following him, yeah, you were always on the wrong side of the trade. That's so. right. That's exactly right. But you, but I always tell people, especially with with media in general, I mean, you look, you turn on the news, what do you hear? You hear the bad stuff. And that's always what's at the top of the headlines, if the bad bleeds, stuff. If it bleeds, it leads. That's right. And, and so if things are good, and I'm not suggesting things are great right now by any stretch, um, but if things are good, what do we do? We spend time with our family, our loved ones, doing things we enjoy, hobbies. But if things are bad, what do we, we're stuck in front of the TV trying to figure out, what do we do next? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so just be careful when you see stuff like this. And that's really the main point. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people, and there's another one on CNBC or Fox Business. I was watching a while back. I can't remember if it was Mel Faber or maybe it was Harry Dent. And this was several years ago. And they're like, listen, you've been on this show 28 times over the last 10 years. And every time you've been, you've been bearish and you've been wrong. Yeah. Right. So what happens if somebody follows that advice? You get in trouble. Right. Well, when we come back, a more important topic, bug out bags and survival training go mainstream. Don't go away. More of the Rule of Estimate show coming up with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, uh, my wife came home from work yesterday and, uh, She's like, so what do you think about this? Uh, there's on, on TikTok, there's this, or social, I shouldn't say TikTok. It's kind of everywhere on social media. On social media, um, on, on, June, on June 27th, there was an article out talking about the requirement for women to register for the draft is back on the table, right? So all of a sudden, there's this kind of trend on, on uh, social media about drafting women into the military. And, and my wife said, you know, so... She goes, what would you think about you and me getting drafted in the military? I go, this will never work. I said, I said, we'll be out, you know, we'll be out in the desert or, or wherever we are. And you're going to be trying to tell me where to drive and, and asking where the nearest Starbucks is. I mean, this, <laughs> this isn't going to work. So she didn't like that, by the way. <laughs> She's probably like, yeah, I'm going to be the one giving you directions. Yeah, she would be. She'd be like, uh, and of course, she'd be worried about, you know, whether you're not the the you know the the camo made her butt look better or not but you know that's gonna be 
<laughs> Honey, it's very slimming. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, camel camouflage. Hides, <laughs> camouflage hides, hides everything. <laughs> so Go over there by those trees. Anyway, yeah, Look, can't even see it's there. Yeah. So after my 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 remarks back, she didn't talk to me for about an hour. But other than that, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, anyway, um, you know, so we were talking about kind of this, uh, you know, Harry Dent. And this idea of this, this big crash coming in 2024. Look, I don't want to take. A, I don't want to minimize the importance of that story, and I'm not saying just disregard it entirely because there is certainly a risk of a correction in the markets in the next year or two. Uh, and I'm talking about one of of more size, right? So we had a 20 percent correction last year. And that is certainly normal within the context of markets over time. And, you know, that's that that was fine. Right. And so everybody was talking about, oh, that was the bear market. And that really wasn't the bear market. We didn't unwind valuations in a in a, in a true bear market. You're going to unwind valuations to a large degree. And, you know, when you think about 2008 as an example, we cut valuations by more than half uh, during 2008. We didn't do that in 2022 during that correction. So in corrections, in market corrections, you don't unwind valuations and markets recover fairly quickly as we've seen this year. In a bear market, bear markets are a big unwinding of valuations you have a big reduction in overvaluation and it takes a long time for markets to recover several years right uh in 2008 we had a 50 percent decline it was about four years later before we got back to even and that's what you would expect coming out of a real bear market so again i don't want to minimize his point i don't agree with his points that he makes in terms of why we'll have this 86% unwinding in the market. But could we have a 30, 40, 50% correction in the market? Absolutely. And that would align itself with some type of financial credit related event because of higher interest rates that eventually breaks the back of the banking system at some point, creates a regional bank crisis that's widespread. Um, you know, creates a financial crisis of some sort in the in the housing market. I'm not. I don't know where it would show up. Is my point. We none of us do know. Uh, but when it shows up, that's when you get these type of big corrections. And so, is that a possibility? Absolutely. Right. Because of where interest rates are, because of the strain on the financial markets of high interest rates, there is certainly the risk of an unwinding of some financially related market because of the amount of leverage that we have in the whole system. So I uh, to to you know and so my point here is that I'm not saying that this is absolutely going to happen. I'm just saying that's the real risk, right? There is a there is a risk of a big correction in the markets, but it's probably on the magnitude of 30, 40, 50% and Federal Reserves, banks, uh, central banks globally are going to step in just like we saw in 2020. And the new playbook is exactly what we saw in 2020, which is going to be, you know, massive bailouts of financial institutions, massive injections of capital into the markets, um, you know, um, you know, direct checks to households. This is going to be a new thing now because every time we get into a big crisis, it's going to be, oh, well, last time we sent checks to households, we had a big surge in economic growth. Here we go again. Right. And so this is going to be the new playbook going forward. Now, the efficacy of those actions 
are going to be less and less each time, just as it was with the Federal Reserve. We had to have bigger and bigger rounds of QE to get the same result from the Federal Reserve. So the next event will require even more capital, bigger debts, bigger deficits to bail out the next crisis. And yes, at some point, someday, probably after our lifetimes, you know, it may not work. But for now, that's going to be the response to these crises when they continue to occur. Yeah, and we've used this playbook essentially since 2008. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, been no major big change in this. Now, granted, this last time with stimulus, with the pandemic, I mean, much different scenario, something we've never experienced before. And you think about all the things that occurred, they use that same playbook, but then shutting down the economy. I mean, you get a perfect storm in so many ways. Right, yeah. And I go back and think about all the things that occurred that year. I mean, you had just prior to that, you had swine flu in China. They weren't exporting key components to fertilizer. You had droughts. You've got all of these things that are occurring all at once um, in light of the pan on top of the pandemic when you've got you know supply chain shut down and then everybody gets free money you don't have to spend it on your mortgage your rent well heck what are you going to do you're going to buy things you want not things you need which is extremely all these by themselves are inflationary you couple them together you've got a massive problem so you're right you've got all of these additional things that you have to do but how many arrows does the fed have in its quiver which is why they're going to be probably pretty slow until they until they have to right to decrease rates or they're going to tell you but look the fed everybody says you can't fight the fed can't fight the fed and i agree but on the other end of this the fed was not going to hike inflation's transitory inflation's transitory boom right we're hiking went on the fastest hiking campaign that we've ever seen right and it'll likely be the opposite way because what's going to happen you just mentioned all the leverage mm-hmm. At some point, the runway, we're going to run off of it, right? right? There's nowhere else to go. Banks are going to get stri- more stringent with their lending policies. We're already seeing that. You're seeing, you know... Bank- bankruptcies on the rise. Credit card delinquencies are rising. Credit card balances are higher than 2008 and nine levels. Personal savings is diminished. I mean, these are all things that, that it takes time to play out. And so not trying to paint this big, ugly picture, but at some point, you do get some type of yeah. correction. Now, going back to this 86% decline, supposedly, who knows? Nobody knows. But at the end of the day, are, are we going to stop doing business? Are you going to stop buying products? Mm-hmm. Are they going to stop producing them? No. There's going to be something. And, and not all these companies are zombie companies. I keep hearing that there, word there, thrown there, out. There's a lot. There is a lot. And, but most of those, uh, so just real quick, and we've written about this before, Zombie companies are companies that have to issue debt in order to basically stay alive, right? So they're they're feeding on debt just to stay alive. And there's probably about 20% of the Russell 2000 that fall into that camp. It's a it's a significant number. And but you know these these zombie companies exist in these much smaller companies. Um, that won't have as, you know, when, when they go under and we have bankruptcy surge, which we will at some point, when you, if, when you have a recession, you're going to see bankruptcies really tick up. It'll be in those companies because they can't refinance, whatever it is. But that's not going to cause the market to crash because the S&P 500 doesn't have that issue. So now if you're, if you're mostly invested in a lot of small cap companies, that's fine. Um, you know, a lot of articles out lately that small caps are undervalued. Now is the time to buy small caps. I'd be a little careful with that. It's a bit early because of the fact that small cap and mid cap companies are very subject to economic growth. 
right? They, they, they don't have big war chests to do stock buybacks to help boost earnings. They don't have the ability to leverage up to tremendous amounts. They don't have just huge war chests of cash to work through uh, an economic environment. So they're very subject. They're very tied to the economic cycle. So I'd be a little careful with a small cap mid caps right now. I'd be more focused on large cap at the moment. But coming out of the next recession, those guys that survive are going to be great opportunities. We're just not there yet. Well, there's going to be a lot of things I think that you would not want to touch today Yep, that are going to be fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think the glass is, is half full in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity out there, especially if you can be nimble. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the key. Yep. And, you know, buy and hold, I think, is going to be you're going to be more challenged. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's I think that's the real takeaway from this, which is that you know, setting aside Harry Dent, setting aside, you know, all these other kind of issues, you know, the the real issue, I think, for investors over the next decade is going to be a market that's more flattish in nature um, rather than kind of this trending, ripping bull market. And, and this is all X, the central bank coming in and just dumping a, a ton of, you know, going back to QE, going back to all this other stuff, that'll change the dynamic. But if everything remains status quo, Interest rates just kind of drift back down to, with inflation. The economy just stays on its feet. The, the the Federal Reserve is able to just kind of sit on the sidelines. Kind of a nirvana environment. Markets are going to be more flat than up because of valuations, because of growth issues, et cetera. And the debt. Yeah, interesting so. times. Absolutely. All right, uh, coming back from the break, which one do you want to do next? Hmm. Well, we got we got bond I have, math. We've got. So I have been bringing you all the doom and gloom. Maybe you do the bond math. You want to do bond math? Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll do bond math. I'll put a link in our YouTube channel, The Real Investment Show, as well. If you have not been on there, go subscribe. If you want to listen to it later? Go check us out. Um, but we talk about this a lot. I thought this was they had a couple good charts in here. Okay, all right. We'll come back and talk about bond math. It's, it's exciting. Woohoo! <laughs> Don't go away. Get, get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hey, welcome back to the show this morning. So just talking a little bit about, you know, we've talked a lot about bonds lately, probably ad nauseum. So Danny had to jump into the conversation. <laughs> it's been a week. I mean. I it's been a week. Um, anyway, the, there's an article on uh, Market Watch this morning talking about bond mass shows traders bold enough to bet on treasuries could reap dazzling returns with little risk. Um, and this, this gets a little bit heady pretty quick. Um, so we're going to try to keep it super simple, as I guess as best we can. But the... The basis of the article is is a function that from where we are at current levels, rates can't go up much more because of the risk of, you know, what happens in the economy. Right. So you're and and of course, we've already been talking about the Fed's probably done, you know, hiking rates here. And 
Um, if the economy slows, um, rates are going to come down. Rates, you know, interest rates are a function of economic growth, inflation. So you take a look at inflation. We're basically at you know 3.7, 3.8. Take a look at economic growth according to the latest uh, Atlanta Fed GDP report. We're going to be growing a little bit over you know three and a half. Um, their quarterly uh, annualized estimates 5.4. So if you have 5.4 on GDP growth, 4.8% of the 10-year Treasury, that's about where you should be, right? So, you know, there's just this high correlation between economic growth inflation and uh, what happens with interest rates. So if you're thinking interest rates are going to decline, I'm sorry, if you think the economic growth rate is going to decline, interest rates and inflation will fall also because interest rates and inflation are a function of economic growth, right? So just kind of makes sense. So, so where you are right now, interest rates can't go up a whole lot more. So your downside on interest rates outweighs your upside. But again, so this gets into what, and this is where it gets a little bit heady, this bond math, is talking about convexity. And so, you know, there's, you know, uh, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, if you buy a, a, a bond that matures in 20 years, right, um, there is a, a, a kind of mathematical calculation relating to interest rates. So this is, and, and so when interest rates move up or down based on the maturity of that bond, there is a, a, rel a corresponding movement in the price of that bond. So the longer the duration of the bond, the bigger the movement versus a shorter bond, right? So a one-year bond won't move up or down as much in price as a longer bond. And this is, we talk about duration and we talk about these other things. So this is this is where the math gets funny. I've got this table here from the chart or from the article. Um, Brent will put this up, and well, Danny and I can walk through it with you here just real quick, um, just to kind of put this into perspective. Because you know, as as investors, what we're looking for is opportunity where we can make really good money on something. And again, you know, the the problem with investors is that we're too short sighted. Now we we buy something today and we expect this immediate return tomorrow. But the real opportunities come with buying assets that are grossly undervalued, cheap, and have a real potential to create long-term relative returns. So this is so this is the chart from the article. It's called Bond Math: Treasury dura uh, Treasury Duration, Convexity, and Asymmetry. And so you'll notice just and let's just take the bottom line because that way we can all just focus on 30-year Treasuries just for a moment. But you can look at different durations. Um, you know. A 30-year Treasury with a 4.8% current rate, right? Now, this is the current yield. It's not the current coupon, right? So coupons are different. Coupons are the fixed rate on the coupon. What it trades for is the current yield. So if, if a 30-year Treasury has a current yield of 4.8%, it has a duration of 16.2 years. So this is how this is the impact of interest rates on that bond. Danny, comments? Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind, that's not every bond. I mean, I've seen 20-year treasuries that have a 16.2% yeah. duration, right? Uh, or 16.2-year. Now, so 30-year, you can find some that are more. To your point, Lance, right. you know, you're mentioning, hey, 4.8 is your current rate, but your coupon may be 3.5. It may be 4. Right. But that's what you're getting because prices will decline. So, you know, there's a lot of times somebody may hold a bond that's paying, say, 3 and they say, well, I want to get out of this 3% bond and go buy this 4.8% bond. No difference. There's no difference because that three that bond that's paying you three is already declined enough that essentially you're going to get the exact same yield over time. 
Mm, exactly. And this and this is a, if you hold it to maturity. If you hold it to maturity. And this is the big thing that that we talk about a lot. So, uh, but I want you to uh, you can bring, leave the chart up, Brent. There's nothing they gain from looking at our faces. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Um, move to the right-hand side of that chart here real quick. And this is the 12-month total return percentage based on changes in rates. And here's what I want to draw your attention to. You know, look if you look at where we are currently and look at the difference in the yields in particular and the, and the movement in price, and let's take the, the, the most, let's take the far left and the far right as a comparison. So if interest rates rise over the next year by 300 basis points, the bond will decline by 29%. If rates fall the same amount, 300 basis points, because of convexity, the price of that bond will rise 72%, right? So your downside risk, if you believe that interest rates are going to go up 300 basis points from here, so you're now talking about interest rates at, uh, you know, almost 8%, right? So go from 4%, 4.8% to add 300 basis points, and they're now 7.8%. So in a 300 basis point rise, that bond's going to decline by 29%. If they go, if, but if we get into a recession, right, which everybody's, you know, if you're expecting a recession, you're in the bearish camp, right? You're, 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 you're kind of, uh, you know, adhering to the Harry Dent the, theatrics here. If you believe we're going to get in a recession, the Fed's going to cut rates. Interest rates are going to fall because economic growth is slowing because why? We're in a recession. So if interest rates go from 4.8 back to 1.8, which is where you would expect them to be in a recession, you have a 72% rate of return on that bond. So so what so in the, and so this is the point that that we've been trying to make is that the simple math of owning longer duration bonds just makes a lot of sense here, but it doesn't mean you're going to make this money tomorrow, right? This is why we've talked about before. You, you've got to have an outlook of 12 to 18 to 36 months because you've got to have the recession eventually occur that brings inflation and brings economic growth down, which will then subsequently bring interest rates down with it as well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at just the stress on the banking system, stress that's going on in the world right now, I mean, there's the higher the rates go, the more problematic this becomes. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen that shoot back in March and April. We had a problem, right? right. There's there's going to become bigger issues at some point when the rates continue to tick higher. And so this has to be a longer term trade. This is not something that is, um, you know, I don't think you put everything you own into it, especially if I it, did. It, well, okay. <laughs> especially if. No, you didn't. Because <laughs> actually, I know because I can see your portfolio. That's a lie. Well, my personal one is almost yeah, all bonds. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, but but I think you can have a high conviction in this, but you have yeah. to be willing to wait it out, and you have to have you know some intestinal fortitude, so to speak, to say, okay, hey, rates may tick higher here, but I still believe the thesis is going to play out, and knowing that it's going to be very difficult to hit this right at the top, right. I think well, that's what and, everybody wants, right? And, and look, there's a big difference, too. It's like, you know, in 2008, right, is a good example. Nobody wanted to buy stocks. Why? Because every company was going to go bankrupt. And there is there is a big difference between stocks and bonds uh, in particular. And, and, and when we're talking about bonds... Especially treasuries. That was, my, that was my point. When we're talking about bonds here, we're talking about U.S. treasuries. We're not talking about corporates. Can corporates default? Absolutely. So there is default risk when you have corporate bonds. Stocks can go to zero. Companies can go out of business. 
it happens. Enron, WorldCom, uh, Lucent, you know, <laughs> going down the line. Um, Danny and I, you know, went through the dot-com crash, and we saw Global Crossing and, you know, a whole variety of companies that were the darlings of Wall Street. They went away. And so your value can go to zero in a stock. And so there's certainly concern of that. Now, you know, the, the problem is that in a bear market like 2008, we assume every company is going bankrupt. That's not going, that's not going to be the case. And that's why real value exists in bear markets for stocks, right? You find those undervalued companies that everybody's throwing out, baby with a bathwater, assuming they're going bankrupt. That's where you make a lot of money. You don't make a lot of money in stocks buying markets at tops when everything is good, right? So the same thing in bonds. Everybody right now assumes that bonds are going to zero. They're government treasuries. They're not going to zero. They will get paid. That's why they're called a risk-free investment. It's the only thing that you get that is technically termed a risk-free investment in the financial markets. So, you know, if you can buy something cheap enough where you have a guaranteed payment on the other side, you just have to give it time to work. Yeah, and I think that that's the one thing that's tough for people to understand just in general in conversations with a lot of different folks. It's tough because you have to wait this out. And even like, you know, I, have, I have clients that buy brokerage CDs and they're like, mm -hmm. what in the world? This thing's red. It's going, it's gone yeah. down. And it may be a six month, a year CD. Can, can, can we talk about that for just a second? Cause this is the most frustrating thing for me, yeah. right? You know, people buy a CD as a good example, mm -hmm. right? At a bank right now. Now, if you buy a CD at the bank and you, they give you the little piece of paper, right? All that is, is them giving you a deposit and then they're taking the money, they go buy bonds with it. That's how they give you the yield. You just don't see the price move up and down every day on your CD. Because they don't show it to you on your statement. statement. It's actually physically doing so in the background. Right. On your statement that you get from Fidelity, if you have a brokered CD, a bond, whatever it is, these will all mature at face value. The only thing you're seeing every day is the mark to market. In other words, if you wanted to sell that asset today, if you have a 4% CD and the current rate is 5% on a new CD, the price of your CD will go down to make that yield equivalent to the one issued today at five. Doesn't mean you're losing money. It's still going to mature at face value. It's just the mark to market. So just ignore that stuff on your statement. You're not losing money. Anyway, yeah, especially if it's short term, it's something that's going to mature soon. Absolutely. You know, most people will kind of stagger these out and ladder them. I think there's some great strategies to do so. Absolutely. Just, you know, just don't get heartburn when you see that red, especially exactly. on the short term. Stuff. Exactly. Danny, thanks so much. Appreciate Thank you. it. All right. Wraps up the show for the day. We'll be back uh, tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz to talk more about stuff right here on The Real Investment Show. It's a show about stuff. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.